Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Today we got a slew of better than expected economic data out of the United States, including demand for US business equipment unexpectedly increasing in October by the most since the start of the year. So is it the time? Pop the champagne, get ready for a tick up across the board next year. Uh, Dan North joining us now, Chief Economist at North America at Euler Hermes. Uh, Dan, can you give us a sense, first of all, on how positive today's economic data was? Well, I think, uh, first of all, good morning and happy almost Turkey Day to you. Um, looking at the month to month data on a number of things this morning, I mean, you cited durable goods. Yeah, it's up for the month, but I tend to take a longer-term view. And if you look at core orders, we're still negative year over year, negative 0.8. A year ago, that was 4.1%. So there's a downtrend there. And if you look at shipments, um, which go into GDP, you know, it's 0.4% year over year. So that bodes well poorly for fourth quarter GDP. And, you know, a year ago, it was 4.7%. Um, and you saw a few other things this morning that looked kind of positive on the surface. But the biggest one to me is the indicator of the consumer. You know, the consumer has been sort of holding up the economy. At least that's the narrative. Well, this morning you see uh, for the most recent data in October, real consumption was only up 0.1% to 2.3%. And last month, uh, year over year, last month that was 2.6%. And it was 3.2% last year. Um, and real income was down 0.3%. So I think that's the most important data of the morning. And certainly if you look at a longer term trend, to me, it's it's distinctly negative. So, Dan, you, focusing on the consumer again, the consumer, as you mentioned, has been kind of the bulwark of this economy uh, over the last uh, several quarters. Are you concerned that 2020, the consumer may not be able to do its part again for the economy? I really am. And, and here's, again, as a perfect example, real uh, disposable personal income down this month. What I see is, let's say, holiday sales are coming up, right? I mean, in a few days, we're going to get the anecdotal reports of how good holiday sales are. And I think they're probably going to be pretty good. You know. By the way, I love the sort of cynical resignation that everyone who I've spoken to this morning has about Black Friday. Way to go with the spirit. Carry on. <laughs> You're like, well, yeah. I said, they're, I said they're going to be pretty good, we think. We've got the exuberance of consumer confidence and the stock market's high. So, you know, uh, over the past few years, it's something like 4% holiday sales growth overall, more so on Black Friday, of course. But let's say, you know, the consumer spends as much as usual for holiday sales, maybe more because of the exuberance. I think that sets us up for a little bit of a fall in the first quarter, especially since income is trending down. And that's what really gives us uh, a concern about a future slowdown. We think uh, growth in the first quarter could be flat even. Dan, do you think there could be a U.S. recession in 2020 or maybe in 2021? We think there's definitely going to be a sharp slowdown. We're looking at something like 1.6% GDP for uh, all of 2020. You know, this past year of 2019 was 2.3%. So for sure, a significant slowdown. And if this trade war picks up, you know, that could really knock 
a half or one percentage point off of GDP, and, and in our world, that's a lot. Dan, you sound... Still, Go ahead. You... I was just going to say, we still do think that there's a, uh, a possibility of a recession, but certainly a slowdown, no question about that. Dan, I'm trying to square what you're saying with the consensus right now among at least Wall Street analysts, which believe that, uh, who believe that the uh, U.S. equity market is going to do very well, particularly in the first quarter or first half of the year with some accelerating growth. Why are they getting it so wrong? I wouldn't say they're getting it wrong about the stock market. Well, number one, two things. You know, we are really uh, involved in uh, trade credit, and we have to have a more realistic approach to what's actually happening to business on the front lines, and we're seeing a, an absolutely distinct deterioration there. But the important point is um, the stock market isn't necessarily connected to the economy uh, a lot of the time. For instance, if you go back, and look at the past 10 recessions, the stock market only gave you some kind of warning three times. So it's not at all uncommon for them to disconnect. So I can't argue with the banks and brokerages who want to sell investments who are saying, yeah, the stock market's going to be great. Well, it could well be, you know, with low interest rates, but it's not a connection to the economy necessarily. Dan North, thanks so much for joining us. Dan North, he's Chief Economist for North America for Euler Hermes. Joining us on the phone from Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. We appreciate his comments. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist, retail columnist, Sarah Halzak. She covers all things retail for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us from the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Black Friday coming up, Cyber Monday coming up. What is the expectation for holiday sales this year? So I think the expectations are largely upbeat uh, for the season overall. Uh, holiday sales are expected to be up about 4%, and that's because consumers are feeling pretty good. And, you know, we saw quite a mixed bag of retail earnings results in the last couple of weeks uh, with some strong performers and some weak performers. But I think that just suggests that uh, for, for the ones that are executing well and do have a good strategy, there are plenty of dollars uh, out there to, to win and be fought for this season. Sarah, let's talk about Black Friday. This is the uh, cliche of people lining up at 3 a.m. to bust through the doors in these manufactured televised events. And I'm wondering, is that the reality anymore or is the vast amount of Black Friday shopping online? So uh, it's definitely not the reality anymore. Uh, folks are, this is an increasingly digital holiday. Uh, there will be $7.5 billion spent online alone. On holiday in quotes. We're going to just put that in quotes, but carry on. <laughs> yes. Uh, but we so certainly uh, Black Friday is becoming more and more of a digital occasion. Um, however, stores still really matter a lot, and there will be big crowds in the stores uh, both Thanksgiving evening when a lot of the retailers uh, kick off their big deals events, and and all throughout the weekend. Um, you know, for the holiday season overall, only about 23% of shopping will happen online. Uh, the vast majority of it will still happen in stores. Sarah, what are our Gen Z folks? How are they? shopping. I know they do a lot of e-commerce, but did they what is their store bricks and mortar experience? Are they actually even going to the malls? 
surprisingly, uh, they are. In fact, they shop a lot more like us olds than you might imagine. Um, <laughs> so for uh, purchases like food and beverage, they're still doing, you know, something like 91% of their shopping in stores. For items like apparel, 77% of their shopping in stores. And they actually say in surveys they like the experience of being in a store. When we talk about this weekend specifically, uh, Deloitte did some survey work around this and asked folks, will you be out shopping with family and friends? Gen Z was most likely to respond, uh, among people who were going to go to stores this weekend, Gen Z was most likely to respond that they were doing it in a social way, that they were doing it with family and friends. And I think if you've never been out on Black Friday before, uh, I've been doing this for seven years now as in my capacity as a reporter. Um, and this is consistent with what you see, is that there aren't a lot of people out in the stores this weekend who are just trying to check off their gift list and uh, you know be very task-oriented and errand-oriented. This is a social event. This is something that people like to do with their family and friends as sort of a sport or a ritual. I'm wondering about this data that we got out today. Um, retailers rejoice. This is on the Bloomberg Terminal. There's never been a better time to buy heading into a Black Friday, and this was a look at uh, buying conditions in the U.S. advancing to the highest ever levels. Does that foretell something in your mind and, and sort of where they may be shopping to? You know, I think the, in terms of where they're going to be shopping this year, I think the winners are going to be the retailers that have done the best job of kind of integrating their online and in-store experiences. I think Walmart, Target, and Best Buy uh, are clear examples of that, where it's easy to ping pong back and forth between their website and between their stores to place an order online and pick it up in the store or to browse in the store and go and buy online later. Uh, I think those kinds of factors are what's going to be shaping people's purchasing decisions most. And of course, where the discounts are. Uh, there's no doubt that this is a very deals-oriented weekend uh, and that that is shaping a lot of the decision-making about where dollars get spent. Sir, with all the changes in consumer spending, e-commerce, and so on, just give us a, a sense of how important still is this holiday shopping period for retailers? The holiday shopping period is critically important. Um, it's more important for some retailers than others. So toy stores, jewelry stores, for example, uh, they do draw a more disproportionate share of their sales during the holiday season than, uh, say, a bookstore. Um, so it, it varies by retailer. But this is a really important time of year, not only for uh, the actual dollars that are pulled in, but just because it's a chance to make an impression with a consumer that, you know, in the case of an apparel store, you might only see two or three times a year, right? And so if you're not uh, showing them when they come into your store or pull up your website that you have good merchandise, that you have good pricing, um, that you're sort of aspirational and inspirational, that kind of sets a tone uh, that will stick with that consumer for the rest of the year. So it's a very important uh, several weeks for the retail industry. Sarah Halzak, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Sarah Halzak covers all things retail for Bloomberg Opinion. Well, it is the day before Thanksgiving. People are gearing up for family and friends and food and also for a lot of us shopping on maybe even tomorrow evening heading into Black Friday and Cyber Monday. To get a preview, we welcome Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Love to get your thoughts on how you think this holiday shopping season is going to kick off on, eh, let's call it Friday. Sure. Uh, good to be with you, Paul and Lisa. Well, I, I'm sure it'll uh, start off with a bang. Uh, obviously, through this uh, shopping period, which 
truly begins before November 1st. Forty uh, percent of Americans indicated they would start their holiday shopping uh, in that time. Frame. Hold on a second. When is it just shopping? I mean, if you're starting it before November 1st, can we just call it shopping or is it specifically for no, the holidays? No, I think it's an intention to buy holiday gifts. And I think from a consumer standpoint, that's quite wise because we know that this industry is promotional uh, almost all the time anymore because it's so competitive. And from a bank rate perspective, I also like the idea of not sort of taking the hit to the either the bank account or the credit cards, um, you know, uh, late in the year if if you have the ability to spread out those purchases. So to answer your question from a bank rate data perspective, we did ask Americans, by the way, and uh, just published this survey this week, uh, whether they intend to spend more or less or about the same, and 52% of Americans said they intend to spend about the same as last year. Only 13% said they'd spend more, and 22% said they'd spend less. So we know the re- yeah. yeah, so how does this cohere with the idea that this is the best time ever for consumers and that they're more confident than ever heading into Black Friday? Um, I, I, you know, I guess the question, best time for consumers, I'd I'd want to play that out a little bit and and have an idea about how that works exactly. Uh, But there's plenty of uh, competition out there, and between online and brick and mortar, you certainly uh, can uh, pick and choose, and particularly in the apparel world where it feels like uh, that is sort of uh, yesterday's news in the sense of things to have. So, um, you know, I think also consumers are always consuming, right? And so the question is, you know, I think for a lot of people who are, you might call them well-qualified consumers, what do they need? And, and for many, the answer is not much, and I think that's one of the reasons why purchase of experiences has become more of a thing, because you can always have more experiences, but you don't necessarily need another sweater. So, Mark, give us a sense of, from your survey work, are people going to spend money they have, or are they going to rack up some debt here going into the holiday season? Yeah, and of course, that's one of our key concerns, right? And I think it should be our concern as a society or as a nation as well. And so, uh, I suppose the good news here is that uh, a, a slight majority, 56%, said that they're going to spend money that they already have. And then uh, of those who gave us an answer, in other words, if they had an idea about where they would uh, use their financial resources, 37% said they'd use some combination of credit in that mix. Uh, only about 6% indicated that they would use either uh, most or all with credit. So only 6% are go leaning heavily on the plastic. You know, which raises a question in my mind. We've heard about the strength of the consumer powering the economic recovery in the United States over the past five, ten years. I'm trying to understand how much this has been done on credit and how much further it has to go, uh, given the fact that rates are still low, but that we are starting to see delinquencies tick up a bit, uh, at least in credit cards and auto loans. Well, rates aren't low from a credit card perspective, right? Uh, You know, we survey this all the time, and the average rate for consumer credit card is 18%. Of course, you don't need to take that 18% hit if you're paying the balance off within the month, and then store cards are above 20. Uh, So, you know, I I love the use of reward-oriented credit cards personally, but I I loathe the idea of allowing those balances to go beyond 30 days. But to your question, uh, I think it has as far to go as the economic expansion has far to go, and as long as we can have... Uh, actual gains in income or wages that is above the rate of inflation. And so, uh, you know, I think that is sort of the conundrum, to use an Alan Green Spanish word, uh, that, you know, while the Fed is sort of fighting to get inflation up to uh, its would-be target, uh, you know, a lot of consumers are sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, what about education? What about health care? Those should matter more, shouldn't they? Because those have the outsized impacts on our on our 
finances, and they do matter a lot, right? So what are we hearing, or what are you seeing out there as it relates to Gen Z about how they're buying stuff out there? Are they still buying stuff, or are they just more into experiences? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm glad you asked it uh, because I think this may be one of the one of the things that is going to be most fascinating in the period to come. And so, for those who aren't all into the uh, cohort categories here, we're talking about those who are age 18 to 22, and of course, millennials are perhaps the most talked about uh, and, uh, to some degree, uh, take the most heat in in print, et cetera, uh, via. Uh, use of the words latte and avocado toast and i and i get a little tired of that but but the re- reality is that the gen z folks are really looking to be uh, shaking things up with respect to uh for example looking to buy uh you know gently used clothing for example and uh when we ask people who is focused on saving as a reason why they're not spending more gen z again those 18 to 22 popped up by far at the top of the list that was 54% so, you know, these are the people who truly have been digital only all their lives. Some of the millennials were a bit of a mix between analog and digital. And I think that there's a back, uh lash to that, just the same as in some ways the rest of society is having a backlash to tech. Uh, you know, tech is, has become the the punching bag that the bankers were 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, I, and I think that there are some valid reasons for that, right? The, right. the, the, the fact that people uh, can be bullied in that space and, and, sure. uh, and they also want to have touch points. Sure. And there is now a shift towards some more social uh, affairs in addition to big tech. Mark Hamrick, thank you so much for being with us. Mark Hamrick is a senior economic analyst with Bankrate.com, joining us from Washington, D.C. The years of the unicorn have given way to a year of skepticism with some high-profile misses when it comes to WeWork and other darlings of the venture capital space. But this doesn't really paint the whole picture. Joining us now, Matt Miller, Chief Executive Officer of Embroker, joining us from San Francisco. Matt, you've been surveying the uh, venture capital space, but not just the mega deals or the mega companies within the sector. Could you give us a sense of what you're looking at? Yeah, sure. Thank you. We work with thousands of venture-backed companies. Our company uh, builds an online platform for insurance, and uh, venture-backed companies are one of our main customer segments. So we get data from thousands of uh, backed companies, both small ones and large ones. And a few days ago, we published a report with our findings on all of the data from 2019 that we see across the entire venture industry. So what are some of the key takeaways from your report? Because, again, as Lisa suggested, uh, the VC community, uh, Silicon Valley broadly defined, has taken some lumps here in the public market. Yeah, look, I mean, I think when you look at the numbers, there's a lot of talk about funding slowdown or we're expecting one, but you don't really see it yet. I think what we see is funding activity is still quite strong, particularly uh, in early and middle stage investments. And so I think that we also see companies that are still able actually to raise pretty sizable amounts of money, uh, despite having relatively small or even being pre-revenue. So I think from a deal activity standpoint, at least right now, you still see investors trying to lean in and get deals done. How about the actual companies? How are they doing? I think, you know, obviously it varies across the span. I mean, there are companies that are doing quite well, companies that are potentially slowing down and starting to hoard cash. 
I think one interesting trend we see when we look at the data is that companies in California uh, certainly are hiring fewer people relative to the amount of funding that they've raised than companies uh, in other parts of the country. I think obviously a part of that is just due to the cost of hiring here, but I think a part of it could also be companies that are trying to, to preserve capital. What are the sectors right now that VCs are allocating maybe more money than maybe we've seen in the past? Yeah, I think certainly one of the things that, that we see is uh, fintech continuing to be particularly strong, um, both in terms of average size of deals and overall deal flow. Um, so I think that's an area where both uh, just judging from the investor sentiment that we connect with, but also looking at the numbers, I think we should expect to see uh, pretty wide uh, and continued pattern of growth for fintech companies. But also I think we, we start to see um, still still some decent traction in consumer goods and consumer hardware. And so companies that um, have had a couple big exits in the space, and I think there's investors that are still leaning in. Can you give us a sense of the investments made by the venture capital community and sort of uh, the trend line of them? Are they increasing? Are they decreasing? Are they tending to shift more toward the higher, uh, bigger companies or the smaller ones? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think we see, in general, it depends a little bit on the sector, but overall, continue. Uh, pattern of growth. If you look at the deal volume of uh, total funding, I think you know you do see uh, a lot of still large growth deals coming into a relatively small number of startups that are those that have the most traction momentum. But when you broaden the aperture and look across the entire spectrum, I think you, you continue to see uh, a reasonably strong amount of activity, and not just in the usual places of California and New York, but I think small venture deals are getting done increasingly across the entire country. I think one thing we definitely see is that uh, as companies start to branch out, um, even though San Francisco is still the bulk of where we see most funding activity, there are places like Utah uh, and Texas where we're starting to see a growth of startups uh, and a growth of some early stage deals as investors get more comfortable with technology companies being built outside of just the Bay Area. So Matt, I know there's um, seed rounds, Series A, Series B. Are all those kinds of rounds, those tranches, are those, do they share similar uh, similarities in terms of strength or lack of strength? It's a good question. Actually, probably not. It really depends. I think you can look at companies um, that you know, call around a seed round or call around a Series A that have wildly different sizes of revenue and number of employees. And so to some degree, I think the, the naming nomenclature really just varies depending on uh, how companies are trying to uh, position themselves. But I think you do see certain trends like to raise a Series A round, I think you, most companies want to have uh, an established business model, real revenue in the door, maybe not quite at proven traction, but um, certainly enough points where you, know, you can justify a larger size of investment. And companies that move on to a Series B of, call it, you know, 10 to $15 million or more, tend to have a repeatable business model where you know, you're doing something that works. People are, uh, generally can see the pattern and see how you can grow into a much larger business. So even though I think there are differences uh, specifically between companies uh, at, each, at each round, right. you, you do see some trends that, that tend to continue. Matt Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your thoughts on the venture capital world. Matt Miller is the CEO of M Broker. They've just put out a report kind of detailing their views, kind of what they're seeing uh, in the venture capital community. And I think it's a timely discussion because, as you mentioned, Lisa, 2019, we came into the year thinking, boy, we're going to really spread the wealth of the venture capital and private equity community to the public markets and public investors with, you know, the Ubers and, and Lyfts of the world and WeWorks, of, of course. 
Uh, and some of those big high profile deals obviously have been very disappointing for public equity investors. So um, I think the story we hear from the VC community is yes, there were some big disappointments, but there's a yeah. lot of smaller mid-sized deals that uh, continue to work well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.